Well, good morning, Grace Church. Happy New Year. How are you? Good? Awesome. Yeah. That was better than I expected. It's good to see you. That's, that's the key to success in life is really low expectations. You know that, right? It's just a little, not even a part of the sermon today. I just want to share that with you. It's for somebody. Uh, well, hey, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to 1 Kings chapter 16? 1 Kings 16. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have guys in the back that would love to give you one. Uh, do not be ashamed if you have to turn to page one and figure out where First Kings ends. That's okay as well. Uh, it's, it's in the Old Testament. Well, as you're turning there, I want to give you some background of the sermon series we're starting today called Build the Altar, Call for Fire. I know it's a little intense of a name, uh, but, but here's, here's why we're starting here, and it'll make sense in a moment in First Kings uh, during the interview process, uh, if you're new, I, I've only been here a month, and, and during the interview process, I would get asked the question uh, over and over multiple times, uh, Josh, what's your vision for Grace Church? And I would answer the same way. I would say, um, I'm not sure yet. I think, I think we have to pray about that together, and I think that, and I was always really nervous to answer that way, by the way. I was like, I don't know if they're going to like this, but I'm not sure yet. I think we'll pray and figure out what God has for us. And then I would talk about opportunities. Uh, opportunity to be a gospel-centered church, an opportunity to be a disciple-making church, an opportunity to have connect groups that live like families on mission in North Park, and the opportunity we have at San Diego uh, State University being so close by, and the opportunity for church planting residencies, and the opportunity to bring in pastors who are tired and need to be refueled and just say like, hey, go look at the ocean for a couple hours, and like, you'll just feel better about everything. And like, opportunities for that, and, and I would share about my passion for adoption, and passion for foster care, and passion to see God's glory in the nations, and, and I would share all those opportunities and say, but look, I'm still not sure about the vision. I have tons of ideas, but I'm not sure about the vision, uh, but then I would say this every time, uh, but here's where we would start, uh, and, and I want to share that with you today, that what I share with the elders and the search committee and all the, the teams. Uh, I would start with the sermon series and, and, and a, a leadership effort that would invite us, by God's grace, to be a church of extraordinary prayer. That's where we'd start. That by God's grace, we would be a church of extraordinary prayer so that the foundational level would be, would be on prayer and that whatever vision God gives us, we could set on top of prayer. And I hope that offends none of you. None of you are like, I'm out of here. A new pastor wants us to pray. No, no thank you, Right? Maybe that's you. I, I really hope not. Um, but here's, here's why that's so significant. And, and I, I want to love you enough to tell you this. Uh, there is an obvious discrepancy between where you are and where God would like you to be. And there's an obvious discrepancy in me and you and, and even in the church. There, where we are and where God wants us to be is a gap. And we need to fill that gap with extraordinary prayer. That God, by his grace, would lead us to where he wants us to be. You and I do not have the resources to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in this life. You, Our church, we do not have the resources to accomplish what God has designed us to accomplish. So we need to fill that gap with extraordinary prayer. I'm haunted by a quote I heard from a pastor named David Platt when he was talking about uh, the church. And he says this. He said, the greatest hindrance in the church today may be the people of God trying to attempt to do the work of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God. The greatest hindrance in the church today is the people of God trying to do the work of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God. And I want to say, Grace, may that not be so with us. 
May we recognize our desperate need for God because we are tempted in this life and in this church to have a self-sufficient mentality. There's a temptation to think we can do it by ourselves and we can't. I cannot. I am not Jesus. I cannot do it. But we can pray. And here's the most staggering truth in the world. That God has designed the world in such a way that prayer causes things to happen that would not have happened had we not prayed. Is that not the most staggering truth in the world? That in James chapter 4, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. That God says you don't have that because you haven't prayed about it. It's a staggering truth. So we're going to take God at his word and we're going to go to him and say, God, we need you to do these things. God, we need you to move in this way. And we're going to trust that he can do it because prayer causes things to happen. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about prayer, and that's what this sermon series is about. And by God's grace, we'll grow in the knowledge of what prayer is and how it works, and that our aim over the month of January is that we would be transformed in our hearts, that our faith would be built up, and that we would lay a foundation that can hold up whatever vision God gives to us. So can we do that together? You guys excited about that? Yeah? Yeah, amen? All right, cool. So far, so good. Yeah. No one's left yet about prayer? Everybody cool? (laughs) Crazy idea. We should pray a lot, right? Okay, cool. All right, so that was just the intro. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. We're going to start there. This will all make sense in a minute, but we have to go on a journey together, so stay with me. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became the king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, sons of Nebet, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. That is a significant scripture. Did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than anybody else. So a little bit of backstory here. It's been about 100 years since King David ruled the united Israel. But now the kingdom is divided. You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Ahab is the king. And he has chosen to forsake Yahweh, the one true God, and worship the idol Baal. And his wife is the infamous Jezebel. And he builds an altar to Baal, a different temple to Baal. And he leads the nation away in the worship of the idol Baal. And you go, why, why does this arouse the anger of the Lord so much so that the Bible would say he did more to make God mad than any other king? And so there's a moment in a movie sometimes where you have this like, hey, I got to tell you the backstory so that this will make sense to you. So we're about to have that moment in the sermon where like, why does this make sense? Well, let me give you the backstory. The temple is significant in Jewish history and in the Old Testament story. And so let me, let me pause and tell you why. God had a design for his presence to engage with people throughout history. He had a design, and that design was the Garden of Eden, where his presence had unhindered intimacy, followed by the Ark of the Covenant, followed by the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, followed by the temple, followed by Jesus, followed by the church, followed by New Jerusalem. That's a lot, right? But that's God's design for his engagement with his people. 
And so it starts in the Garden of Eden where God, even in creation, that God's spirit is hovering over the face of the earth. And the word is spoken and things are created. And then man and woman are put into the garden where God meets with his people face to face. The Bible said that God would go on walks with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Unhindered intimacy. The story of scripture begins with a God who wants to be near his people. Fun fact, the story of scripture ends with a God who's near his people. It's a glorious story. But in the garden, God is present with them. The, the garden was God's sanctuary. It was a temple where the creator and his image bearers could relate to one another. They would hang out together. And when they sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of not just the garden, but out of God's presence. Their disobedience made them exiles, not from the garden, but from God's presence. So in other words, the presence of God that they once had freely was no longer free. And this leads to the book of Genesis being the story of back and forth sin. And God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this covenant is given to those people. In Exodus, God's people are enslaved. They're brought out of slavery with Pharaoh and Moses. And then you get in Exodus chapter 13, the next manifest presence of God, where God leads his people in the wilderness with a fire by night and a cloud by day. God's presence, I'm, I'm leading you. Cloud by day, fire by night. And then in Exodus 25, you get the institution of the Ark of the Covenant. God leads Moses to create the Ark of the Covenant likely one year after the Israelites are brought out of Egypt. So I brought a photo of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is probably what it looked like. Can you see that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this was very specifically designed by God to, to tell them what this looked like. And this was the place of his manifest presence. And there were three things inside of the ark. There was a golden pot that had manna representing the time in the wilderness. There was Aaron's rod that had budded representing Aaron being a priest of the Lord. And then there was the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And this, this, was, this was God's presence. Guys, just reading the Old Testament stories about the ark, it's crazy. It's really powerful. Exodus 26, the institution of the tent of meeting and the tabernacle come up. And when they get to the promised land, the tabernacle is placed in the center of all 12 tribes of, of Israel. And so many chapters of the Bible are dedicated to what it's supposed to look like and who can approach the tabernacle and what you got to wear when you go in there and how you wash beforehand and what incense to burn and what basin to use and the prescribed blood and the prescribed goat and how to sprinkle it and the blood of the veil and the process is designed by God. It was a huge deal. And this is what it looked like, the inner courts and the outer courts and this whole system. You may, this, you may think the book of Leviticus is boring to you, but to the first people to read the book of Leviticus, it was riveting because it told you how to be right with God. And they didn't know. Crazy prescriptions on how to be right with God. And this is what the tent of meeting in the tabernacle is. And, and this, this is how the Israelites lived for generations. But it's interesting. Neighboring nations would have war with the Israelites. And there's a couple of stories where where the Philistines, the neighboring nations, they steal the Ark of the Covenant. The Indiana Jones thing I mentioned earlier, that thing. They steal the Ark of the Covenant. One of the best stories in, uh, it's in 2 Samuel, uh, actually 1 Samuel 5. The Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of Dagon, which is their idol, false god. And the next morning they come in and Dagon, the idol, has laid face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the guys that put him in are like, is it breezy in here? Is it windy? Like, did Dagon fall? And I don't know what happened. So they put him up again. The next morning they come in, Dagon's fallen again, but his head and his hands are missing. And they're like, get the Ark of the Covenant out of here. And so when the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Jerusalem, King David dances so aggressively that his clothes fall off. If you have any church background, you've heard this story. King David dances, worships so aggressively, his clothes fall off. He gets, you know, there's this, I'll become more indignified than this scripture. Gets made fun of. There's insecurity with his wife. But, but why is he celebrating? Feel this. The presence of God is back. The presence of God is with us. It's, it's with us again. When the ark comes back, it's, it's powerful because the significance here is Jerusalem was God's kingdom and David is God's king and the temple is where we meet with God and it's back and this is the biggest thing in the world. And then King David has a son named Solomon and Solomon is tasked to build what? The temple. And so we read in 1 Kings chapter 16, eight chapters earlier, 1 Kings chapter 8 is the institution of the temple, the, 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 the inauguration of the temple where everything is designed just perfectly and God's people gather and God's manifest presence shows up in 1 Kings chapter 8 to such a degree that everyone present falls down on their face in worship. Smoke fills the place. God's presence is in the temple. And eight chapters later, King Ahab has the audacity to say, I'm the king now. We don't do any of that stuff. All of these generations leading up to the temple where we meet with God and King Ahab comes along and says, no more, um, I'm going to build my own temple to Baal. I'm going to build my own altar to Baal. I'm going to institute my own priest for Baal. I'm going to institute my own prophets to Baal and that's now going to be who we worship. When all throughout history, Yahweh's people worship Yahweh's way and now they're being led astray to Baal. Can you feel the tension of this? Theologian D.A. Carson, he, he talks about the tabernacle and the temple in a beautiful way. Here's what he says. He says, the tabernacle and the temple, they're designed to teach that the only approach to God for sinful people are by the means God himself has ordained, by the sacrifices God himself has commanded, in the terms God himself lays out, by the priests God himself has ordained, by the, blood, by the shed blood that God himself prescribes. These things were hammered into the nation, that the temple is where we meet with God. And King Ahab has sent them into a different direction. He comes along and he says, I know that Yahweh prescribed it this way, but we're doing it a different way. So he, sat, he sanctioned idol worship, and he did so in defiance of the one true God. And so God sends to Ahab, what he does often in the Old Testament, an encounter with a prophet named Elijah. And that's the, the cinematic moment we're about to watch. Maybe the most extraordinary miracle in all of the Old Testament is the face-off between King Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, flip your Bible one page and we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 17. There's a lot of scripture, so stay with me. We're going to read some, stop, read some, and stop. But I want to get you the whole picture. In verse 17, it says this, when he, that's, that's Ahab, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? He just called the prophet the one that's causing trouble. The guy that speaks for God is the problem to Ahab. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed Baal's. 
Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So the stage is set. The prophets of Baal over here, Elijah in the middle, on Mount Carmel. Just stay with me. You know, geographically, they had a temple for Yahweh and they had a temple for Baal. So they had to find like this third place, kind of this, you know, neutral ground. So they go to Mount Carmel. Everybody's up there. And before this thing even gets going, Elijah looks at all the people and he says this, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? In the Hebrew, this word waver means hobble or stumble or vacillate. And and Elijah says, how, it's almost like he's appealing to his brothers who know generations of what it's been like to worship Yahweh. He looks at them and he says, how long will you be half-hearted? How long will you be half-committed? When are you going to see the division you're living in? Almost like giving them a plea to, to walk away from this, but they say nothing in response. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, am I the only one of the Lord's prophets left? But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on wood, and set, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them, and they prepared it. And when they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. I think this is one of the most sad verses in Scripture. That these people are crying out to God with activity. They're they're cutting themselves, asking their God to to respond. And all they get in response is silence. Which shows you that following a false God leaves you stumbling in the dark. And when you cry out to this false God, all you get in response is silence. This is the harsh truth of idolatry. That idols are always ask you to sacrifice for them. You're always doing something for them, but they cannot speak. They cannot intervene. Idols are not an ever-present help in a time of trouble. They leave you broken. They leave you stumbling through the world, half-heartedly following, and they're silent when you call out to them. And that's what they're experiencing. In verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. This is like the PG-13 version of this. In the Hebrew, it's like maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to go get him because he's like in the bathroom. Can we just keep it in the bathroom? You guys know what? Yeah. He's making fun of them saying, ah, oh, your God's, your God's, bit. he's like he had a rough night. He ate the wrong food. He's like in the bathroom. Like he's obviously not available to you right now. Verse 28, so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with sword and with spear as was their custom until their blood flowed. 
Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. Again, sad verse. But there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. They're crying out. They're cutting themselves and no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 30, when Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, each one of them uh, of the, tr- the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sheaths of seed. And he arranged the wood, and he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So the prophets of Baal had been going all morning. They'd been cutting themselves. They'd been crying out frantically and no response. So it's Elijah's turn. What does he do first? This is so significant. The first thing Elijah does is he goes to the altar that had been torn down. The altar hadn't been being used properly. And the altar is so significant in historical, uh, you know, the the Old Testament history. And what God does at the altar is so significant because that is the place of the sacrifice of sin. The altar is where you start because the altar symbolizes the promise of God, the covenant of God, God's chosen people, the 12 stones. Can you just feel this? All around him, you've got the Israelites from different tribes, and he's taking 12 stones, and he's putting them on, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levi. He's, he's putting them on, and you can maybe even feel in the space like the reminder that God made a covenant to us, and it's on the altar that God made a covenant, and he puts that there saying, God, remember your covenant. People, remember the covenant. Even though there's been great idolatry and great sin, Elijah rebuilds what had been broken. And these 12 stones show the source of covenant. And this altar represented spiritual priority. This is where we confess sins. This is where we pursue righteousness. This is the place where the one true God provides for his people. This is the place where the one true God is not silent. This is the place where the one true God meets with his people and they do not have to stumble around in the dark anymore because here it is clear, our God is not silent. He speaks for us and he, he, he rebuilds the altar. It's powerful. And then Elijah has the audacity to do something every boy scout knows not to do. It's to get wood wet before you try to build a fire. He pours water on it three times. He keeps doing it. It's almost like Elijah is just setting the stage so that God can show off his power. He's like, this is not a magic trick. This is not some joke. We don't have kindling under there that we're going to fake this whole thing. Just so everybody's clear. This is an impossible thing we're asking God to do. It's impossible. And in verse 36... It says, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all the things that you commanded. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Powerful scene. Powerful scene. Where God showed his glory. And in showing his glory, he turned the hearts of the people back to him. And one day, the prophet Elijah single-handedly purified the nation of idolatry, sparks a grassroots revival among God's people, and brings a three and a half year drought to an end. This is not a bad day for him as a prophet. It's a pretty solid performance of that day. And God showed up in a powerful way. I was reminded of Ephesians 3.20. When you, when you read the story, Ephesians 3.20 has it's kind of felt and it's implied in this text that Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that has worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If there has ever been a moment where God did immeasurably more, it was on Mount Carmel. God did immeasurably more. He showed up and brought his glory to bear on his people. And there's some principles that, that are so clear for us. There's some implications from this story that are so clear for us. So I'm going to tell you what a few of those are. Here's the first one. If we try to get our life, our meaning, our worth, our fire from anything besides the one true God, then we will stumble around in the darkness all of our life. If we try to get our glory, our meaning, our worth, our fire from anything else, we will stumble all of our life because false gods can only lead us to false hope. That's what they do. And they can only provide us silence when we cry out to them. So it doesn't matter how zealous we are in worship. If we are worshiping an idol, we're worshiping a God who cannot speak. And activity and enthusiasm, they do not matter because your God will not show up. That's what we learn in the story. And the reason why I want this story to bear on us is because it shows us a template that if you have eyes to see it, you'll see it all through scripture. You'll even see it in church history. And I submit to you, it is the path to, to God's movement in your personal life. If we'll see it, there, there's, a, there's a template here. Build the altar, call for fire. Build the altar, call for fire. There's a duality of human responsibility and supernatural activity. Build the altar, human responsibility. Call for fire, supernatural activity. This is the way by which God shows up in the story of, of the scriptures and the way he shows up in our lives. So, so stay with me. Someone in the Bible or in the world, you see a sin or a compromise or a complacency, and someone sees that, and they, they are bold enough to stand up, and they say, enough, enough, and they rebuild the altar, and they call for God to show up, and, and the fire comes, and you see transformation. So think about Nehemiah, if you have church background. Nehemiah, he sees what's going on with the wall, and he says, enough, it's not okay. we got to rebuild the wall. They rebuild the wall at the dedication of the wall. What happens? God shows up, build the altar, call for fire. Think about the story of Queen Esther. She's not supposed to go before the king, but there's an evil man named Haman that's trying to kill all the Jews, and she's like, I've got to go. I've got to take responsibility. I know I'm not supposed to, but i got to go. And her family fasts and prays as she goes. She builds the altar. They call for fire. 
and God saves in a miraculous way, someone stands up and says, enough. When Jesus shows up in the temple, he flips over the tables. He says, enough. You're missing the meaning of the temple. My father's house is a house of prayer. Enough. And this is what Elijah does. He sees what's going on in the nation of Israel and with King Ahab. And he says, enough. Enough. I'm going to build the altar and I'm going to call for fire and God's going to move. And so church, in your life, where do you need to be bold enough to say, enough? I'm tired of wavering between these two things. I'm tired of stumbling along in this place. Where in your life do you need to rebuild the altar of full commitment to God? Where are you wavering? Where are you stumbling? Where do you need to take personal responsibility and where do you need to call for supernatural intervention? And I know this is a crazy story of God bringing fire on Mount Carmel, but I submit to you, it is practical enough to change your everyday life. So you go, Josh, I want, I want to increase intimacy in my marriage. I want our marriage to be better. Build the altar, call for fire. Are you going on date nights? Have you got counseling? Do you know your wife's love language? Do you have a budget to buy her flowers and stuff? Build the altar. And you're like, man, I'm killing and all that. Then call for fire, fast, pray, ask your small group to pray. Have you asked God to supernaturally intervene? They're like, no, I didn't think God cared about that. No, he cares. Or on the other side, you're like, I'm really praying for my kids. You know, my kids, uh, I've been praying for them. And I'm like, are you hanging out with them? Are you spending time with them? Are you doing, you know, one-on-one times with your kids? Have you walked on the beach with your kid? You're having a hard time with, you see the human responsibility, supernatural activity. It's all throughout the Bible. And the same comes to bear on our church. We cannot cross our fingers and hope that people come to faith in Jesus. That's not how it works. And you cannot just pray that people come to faith in Jesus. You also have to share the gospel. But you also can't just go out and share the gospel and not pray that people come to Jesus. Do you see the duality and the beauty of this? There are places in our life where we have to say enough. There, there's stuff with one, one of our daughters, we just feel stuck. And we're doing all that we can, building the altar. And, but Amy and I have come to a place where we're like, we, got, we just got to pray. Like every single day, we need to put our hands lovingly, not, <laughs> that sounds bad, put our hands on our daughter. No, no. We need to put our hands on our daughter and pray and call for God to supernaturally transform her heart and transform our relationship and rebuild trust and, and just fix some things we can't do because we, we're, we're doing our part the best we can. But God, you've got to supernaturally intervene. So Grace Church, what in your life needs to be rebuilt? What in your life do you need to say enough? What needs to be rebuilt? And then secondly, what needs God's power? Where are you spinning your wheels, but you really just need the fire of God to show up and transform this thing? Where in your life does something need to be rebuilt? And what in your life needs God's power? Because I want to remind you of that thing I said at the beginning. Prayer causes things to happen that would not have happened had you not prayed. Prayer is causal. It does things. Why? Because <clears throat> our God is not silent. Our God is present. He's with us. Prayer causes things. And the greatest hindrance in the church today is the people of God attempting to do the work of God outside the power of the Spirit of God. I would say the same thing in your family, the same thing in your life. The greatest hindrance in your life is you trying to accomplish your life without the power of the Spirit of God coming alongside you in your life. Are we able to own the reality that we're not going to get where we're going without extraordinary prayer? 
without human responsibility and supernatural intervention. And here's here's the craziest part of this whole temple analogy and temple illustration and story about God's presence. Is that we live on the other side of the Old Testament. So we have a greater assurance than even Elijah had. Because there's this crazy story of this young boy who finds himself in the temple and his parents are gone. And when they come and they see him in the temple, they say, hey, why weren't you with us? And this young boy responds to them, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And this young boy calls the temple his father's house. We know that young boy to be named Jesus, who then grows up and in John chapter 2, looks at a group of people and says, destroy that temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And everyone looks around and they're like, isn't he like a carpenter or like a stonemason? Doesn't he know that's not how this works? And they radically misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. That he's not referencing the temple being torn down. He's talking about his body. And then in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus comes along and says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What's he talking about? He's talking about God's presence through history. That the Garden of Eden led to the Ark of the Covenant, led to the Ten of Meeting and the Tabernacle, led to the temple. All of this leading up to the sinless, self-sacrificial death of the Son of God. Who would then victoriously raise from the dead to become the one true greater temple. Whose blood would be spilled. We, We take communion at church. Whose blood would be spilled as the once and for all sacrifice on the altar, fully exhausting God's wrath and then offering God's grace to the world. His body was broken like the veil in the temple tore. What does that signify? When Jesus dies on the cross, the scripture says the veil in the temple tore. What does that signify? We now all have access to God through his broken body and his spilled Blood, Jesus gives us a greater reassurance because he is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. His body is the veil that is torn. His body is the temple and it's shattered and raises again the Bible. It takes this picture and it plays it out beautifully. That the church of Jesus Christ becomes the temple because Jesus was the temple and he gives that gift to us. The meeting place where God speaks is now us through the broken body of Jesus, that we are now the place of the meeting of God. And that gives us crazy reassurance to say, when we pray, God hears us. Our God is not silent. Our God is with us. So I ask you again, what needs to be rebuilt in your life? You have access to one who rebuilds. What needs supernatural activity in your life? You have access to one who is not silent. You are no longer having to go through the outer courts and the inner courts and the washings and all that. No, Jesus has perfectly accomplished everything necessary for us to fight back against the struggles and the sins in our lives. But the question is, why why aren't we taking advantage of that opportunity? Why aren't we a people of extraordinary prayer? Personally, why am I not a man of extraordinary prayer? Because so often I believe that I have to do everything because if I don't do it, it won't get done. And so Grace Church, I want to invite you this year, would you be bold enough to think first we need to pray about that? 
And would you be bold enough to raise your expectation about what God could do in your life? Would you be bold enough to raise your expectation about what God could do in this church? That on Sundays we wouldn't come in just, you know, kind of tired and beat up and hoping that maybe this makes us feel a little better. But we would come in and say, we have an opportunity to meet with the living God. The same God who brought fire down from heaven in Mount Carmel. How crazy is that? The same God that resurrected Christ from the dead so that grace could be offered to all of us. That God is not silent and that God is offering us a relationship. And we can pray and things can happen. Causal things can happen because we pray. So I want to invite us even today to take part in this. And so in just a moment, the band's going to come on stage and we have an opportunity to take communion. And as you take communion today, I want you to recognize the glorious truth that Jesus' blood was spilled and his body was broken so that we could have unhindered intimacy with God. We could have access to God. And as you take communion, would you be open enough to say, God, I need to rebuild this thing in my life. God, I need to call for your supernatural activity in this place. So the band's going to sing two songs, and through the course of those two songs, we're going to have prayer partners up here in the front. Maybe you want to share with someone something that's going on in your life and you want to receive prayer. I know when I was going to church and they would offer prayer in the front, there's one of two options. Either you think, like, you have to really have some bad stuff going on to, like, come forward and get prayer. Maybe you're that person. Or if you're like me, it's like, I want to pray about everything. I'd come forward and be like, hey, I got a test this week, and I, like, need supernatural intervention. And they're like, hey, I'll pray for you, but you also need to study, right? Build the altar, call for fire, like, do both. And so we're going to have prayer partners in the front that would love to pray with you if you, if you need prayer. We also want to invite you to take communion. So over the course of these next two songs, let's have freedom in this place to move around and freedom to respond to God. And by his grace, we would become a church of extraordinary prayer. Maybe it could start today. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. And we thank you for the gift of your presence. God, that your presence is among us. Your presence dwells inside of us in the Holy Spirit. And God, your presence is with us as a church even now. But God, I know so many of us are stuck and so many of us are struggling in areas of our life. And God, I pray that this idea, this template of build the altar, call for fire would help set us free, Lord. God, would give us freedom in you. So Lord, now as we sing, as we take communion, as we pray, Lord, would you be among us, supernaturally moving among us. And God, would we be a people known by your presence? Just like the disciples, that that they were known by the fact that they had been with Jesus. May that be true of us. That we'd be a people who are known by the fact that we've been with Jesus. God, move in our midst. God, make us a people of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name.